0: All right, so we're in the book of Luke, and we've been in the book of Luke, and we're going to be there, I don't know, I can't even tell you how long we're going to be there. We're going to be there until we finish. But Luke chapter 5, and you know, you're welcome to read ahead, we're uh, we're going to be looking at 5 through the end of the chapter this morning, and uh, so next week we'll be in Luke chapter 6, so if you want to read ahead, you're welcome to go ahead and do that. But two great passages of Scripture, and I want to break them down for us this morning, um... The first one will begin in verse uh, 27 after this. Well, just a little background. You know, we talked about this last week, but, uh, you know, as you watch these movies, as you watch the Son of God movie, as you watch uh, the Passion movie, you know, you see this little group of disciples. You see Jesus with the 12 disciples and Mary and Martha and the other Marys, and and they ran out of names, so there was about three or four Marys that traveled with him. And a lot of Mary's, and they were, and it was just like a small little group of people. But I want to tell you, in reality, that's not how it was. I mean, when Jesus came out of the wilderness, well, after his confrontation with the devil, and he went to the synagogues, and he started pe- uh, preaching, and people started getting healed, and blind eyes started getting open, and lepers started getting cleansed. I want to tell you, the small little group of people turned into thousands of people, and the reason that we know that is because it says that on that one day when you know, people were hungry, it says that 5,000 men, 5,000 men, and if you had the women and children in there, 5,000 men, women, and children. There might have been as many as 10,000 people that were there that ate that day. And so, I mean, it was just like they followed him everywhere. The crowds were pressing in. They, I mean, he couldn't even walk. He had to just like slip away at night just to have a break from the people. So. Uh, You know, it's turned into a mob, and and Jesus is really, by this time in Luke chapter 5, and we're very early in, you know, the the life and the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is already a very famous person. I mean, he is like, I mean, if you could compare it, you can't compare him to anything, but almost uh, like rock star status today. I mean, the limousines roll up, and, you know, the red carpet is rolled out, And here comes Jesus, and I mean, the throngs are pressing in, trying to get close to Jesus. And so, we see that um, in uh, verse 27, after this, Jesus went and saw a tax collector uh, by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth, and he said, follow me, follow me. All right, guys, you got to get this, because, you know, all through the scripture, we read this, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners, it's just like, it, it, there wasn't a word bad enough, I guess, for tax collectors, so they just said tax collectors and sinners. You can, put, you can just fill in your own blank today. I mean, who are, in your mind, just think about it. You, you got to be thinking about the worst sinner that you know, and then you would just add that with tax collector, okay? I said, That's the way it would be. Tax collectors and sinners, and we see it. We're going to read a bunch of it today about tax collectors and sinners. But let me tell you why they were so despised and so hated. When when Rome came in and they took over uh, Israel and, and and Judah, when they took over the land, they were a lot like America during the day that uh, the British came in. It was you know we were still under British rule and British government. Uh, British tact, they taxed us but we didn't have a say-so. The early uh, people of the colonies, they didn't have a say-so. All they did is they just lived here and worked here and paid taxes to Britain, to Great Britain. And, and that's the way that Israel was during this time. But in order for a Rome to collect taxes, what they did is they hired their own people. They hired natives. They hired Jews to collect the taxes. And so when you came through and it was time to pay your taxes, the way the tax collector made money is that you would come through and he would charge you $100 taxes for whatever your crops were or anything, and then he would add on another $20 for himself. And this is what caused the other Jews to hate them, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, it's just like, oh man, these ungodly tax collectors, I mean, you know, they're taking, they're skimming, they're taking more, I mean, you could have a cart going, they could tax anything, you could have a cart going down the road, they could tax what was in the cart, they could tax the crop that was in the cart, they could tax the cart, they could tax the wheels on the cart, they could tax what was pulling the cart, and so, I mean, you were really at their mercy. And so they were so hated and so despised that, you know, just they were the outcast of society. They weren't welcome, you know, I mean, you know how it was. Look, if any of you have ever been in junior high or high school, I mean, the last thing that you wanted was to be the outcast. You didn't want to be that, little, that, that person that the rest of the group was talking about. Uh, you, wanted to be, you wanted to fit in. You wanted to be part of the group. And the tax collectors were not. So the only friends that they had were other tax collectors. And, and, and in order for the religious leaders, the Pharisees, to shame the rest of the people, they'd say, well, you don't want to be like the tax collectors or the other sinners, do you? It's like, oh, no, no, we don't want to be like them at all. And so whatever you tell us to do, we're going to do because we don't want to be like that group of people. And so, and so Jesus walks by this guy's booth one day and he walks by Matthew's uh, booth. He's called Levi here, but we know him as, as, as Matthew. Uh, Matthew was the fifth of the apostles to be chosen. The fifth of, the, you know, uh, get this in your mind. Because there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of disciples, but there were only 12 apostles. Uh, you had to be a disciple uh, in order to be an apostle. But you, you know, not everybody was a, was, a, was an apostle. There were, you know, I mean, if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus today, you would be called a disciple or, or a dis, uh, or a student or a follower of Jesus. But just think about this day. I mean, it's just a regular day, taxing, you know, taxing people, and here comes Jesus walking by Matthew's booth. And I mean like I said that Jesus is already a famous person. He's already got he's I mean he is world renowned. I mean everybody knows Jesus and he is highly respected. And he walks by Matthew's booth and he just simply looks down and says, "Matthew, follow me." How much hesitation do you think there was there on Matthew's part? I mean, just think about it. You got a booth you got money stacked up to here. Uh, You've got a good income. You're making good money. But, you know, there was something about the income, and there was something about the money, and there was something about being separated from God, and there was something about being separated from, you know, even tax collectors were separated from family. I mean, even their own family, you know, looked at them with disgust and didn't really want anything to do with them. And so here comes Jesus one day and says, Matthew, follow me. You think it took long? I think there was something so longing, so hungry in Matthew's heart that he never even thought twice about it. I think he got up and walked away from that table as quick as he could. I mean, this is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is calling me. I mean, think about the thousands of people that Jesus walked by that day just to get to Matthew. And then all of a sudden, he looks at Matthew and says, follow me. And Matthew just gets up and walks away. I mean, he walks away. And then uh, it says that he left everything and followed him. And then Matthew does what all of us should do. I mean, he's excited. He is excited about this newfound life, this new acceptance. You know, it's not rules and regulations anymore. It's not the outcast sinner. It's not the scornful names that he had been called before. You know, it's a new chance. I've got hope. I've got joy in my life because of what Jesus of Nazareth has done. And so Matthew, I mean, he does what everybody would do the last day of work. I'm through with work. Hey, let's have a party. I mean, the party's on, and so uh, Matthew holds a great banquet for Jesus in his house. Large crowds of other tax collectors come. It's like Matthew saying to other sinners, tax collectors and sinners, come and see what Jesus has done for me. you got to come and see what Jesus has done for me. And so all of these tax collectors and all of these sinners are gathered together in uh, Matthew's house, and they're eating, and they're drinking, And the Pharisees and the teachers, and this is kind of the beginning of Luke's perspective. You know, we talk about this, and I I want you to catch this, because Luke, of of all the four gospel writers, Luke is the one that points this out the the most. And between now and the time that we get to chapter 16 of Luke, um, by the time that we get to the prodigal son, you're going to see this over and over and over again. And we talk about, you've heard, you know, people say this before, ask this question, who killed Jesus? You know, was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Well, the bottom line is, it starts right here. It starts with the division between Jesus and the Pharisees. I mean, this is the bottom line. I know that Jesus died for all of us, and it was God's plan that he died for all of us. I mean, we were all sinners saved by grace. But this is where it starts. It starts with this murmuring, with this complaining, till they finally get to the point that says that, you know what, we cannot let this man go the way that he has been going. We, Pharisees, religious leaders, we have got to do something about it. We read last week uh, where Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said, it's better that one man dies for the nation than the nation perish for one man. So it starts with them, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had belong to their sex, complain to the disciples. Notice this, they didn't even have the intestinal fortitude to go face-to-face with Jesus and say something to him. It's just kind of like, hey, let's just, let's put the little wedge here between, these are his students, these are his disciples, let's say something to them. And so they complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy Who need a doctor, but the sick? I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And I'm going to just say he wasn't by in any way saying that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were healthy and that they they didn't need a doctor. As a matter of fact, they needed a doctor probably as much as any anyone. He calls them hypocrites. Uh, You know, he he points out their sin. He talks about how they were willing to put heavy loads on people, but they wouldn't lift one finger to help anybody. They could care less about these tax collectors and these sinners. I mean, to them, they were garbage. They were scum. It was just like the world would be better off without them. And Jesus is saying, you know what? It's not the healthy that need the doctor, but the sick. And so really what we have here is Jesus making a, what's he called, the great physician? The great physician, so he's making a house call, okay? The great physician is making a house call here. You know, he's going to somebody's house that's a sinner, and, you know, he's going to engage in fellowship with them, and uh, this tension continues to build. Uh, The Pharisees are saying, you know, it's works. Keep the rules. Keep the regulations. And you know what? A lot of times we'll do that as well. We'll witness to somebody, and they get saved. And then, you know, what we start saying? Well, you know, the, you need to stop doing. You, you need to stop. Hey, you know, you need to stop. Well, like me, you know, like when I got saved, I mean, I was like a Nazi Christian. I'm serious. I mean, I was. I just, I, the first thing, I mean, I'm not even saved the first Christmas. I'm, I got saved probably in, uh, you know, like the fall of 1970. We go home for Christmas. I mean, I hit the door with my foot, and I'm just like, you are all sinners, and you're all going to hell. Now, how do you think that went over? It's like, great, thank you, good to see you, son, glad you're here, Merry Christmas. You know, uh, so, and that's kind of what these people were under, the Pharisees were, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep all these rules. You've got to keep all these regulations. These are the things that you got to do. You can't do this. You've got to do this. And it was just like, and Jesus shows up and he says, you know, he embraces the sinner. I mean, the woman that's caught in the act of adultery, he embraces her. He treats her with loving kindness, with grace and compassion. It's the same way that he treated the tax collectors. He embraced them and made them feel loved and warm and welcome And they were glad to be in His presence. They were excited about being in His presence. That's why, you know, some people feel more comfortable. Listen to this. Some people feel more comfortable at Miller time at 5 o'clock in a bar. They feel more comfortable there with their friends than they do in church on Sunday morning. And I tell you what, that's a problem. That is a problem. They should feel more comfortable here you know, where we welcome and embrace sinners and say, look, we know the struggles that you're going through. We're going to try to help you on your way. But we're not going to judge you. We're not going to point the finger at you. We're not going to make you feel condemned while you're in this place. We want you to feel warm and welcome. And if you're visiting here this morning, I hope that that's the way you feel. I hope you feel warm and welcome in this place. All right, so I, I love this. I, you know, I, I got to go back. I got to back up a little bit because I'm going to give you some examples Of leaving, Matthew leaving the table. And many times when you and I come to the Lord, we leave the table, but then sometimes we want to go back to the very table that we left. And uh, I, I just need to ask you have you really left the table, or have you left some things on the table that you need to keep going back to? You know, the Bible tells us that when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, and I know it's a struggle. I know Nina and I was talking about this. I was visiting with a pastor from another church the other day. We were discussing this, how that some people, when they come to the Lord, it's just like, it's just amazing the change, the radical change that happens in their life. It's just like that video we were watching. The shackles fall off. The chains fall off. And it's just like the big things in their life they're absolutely set free from. And other people just have this ongoing struggle. It's kind of like the Goliath in their life. I mean, David goes out, you know, the young David goes out and slays this giant, kills him, and it's like he's not a problem for David or Israel anymore. But there are some other problems that follow. And see, I want to just say that in some of our lives, we see these great big giants that are just destroyed right away, and we don't have a problem with them. You never even have to look back at these problems in your life. And there are other Christians that, you know, deal with this on an ongoing basis. And that's why they need our love. They need our compassion. They need our help. They need someone to put an arm around their shoulder and say, you know what? You know what? God, I know you're struggling. I was there. I've I've had those same struggles in my own life. God helped me. And I know that he has not given up on you and he's going to help you as well. But let me give you an example of Old Testament example. You guys know the story. It's about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, this great man of God, you know, he's getting ready to be uh, lifted up in this huge chariot of fire. And uh, he has a protege uh, called Elisha. And Elisha is like the next one in line. He's going he's gonna to be the next prophet of Israel. And uh, so here comes the call, kind of like Jesus passing by Matthew's booth. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19... It says, Elijah passed by him, threw his mantle on him. All right, this is Elijah, the prophet, putting his mantle on the second in call, the second one to be called, Elisha. He's, out, he's been out in the field. He's been plowing. He's plowing in the field with oxen and a plow. And it says that he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again for what I have done to you. And Elisha turned back from him. And notice this. This is called, in our language today, this is called burning bridges. And sometimes burning bridges is a good thing to do, and sometimes it's a bad thing to do. But in this particular case, and when it comes to us following Christ, burning some bridges is a good thing to do. And he says... In verse 21, Elisha turned back from him and took... This is his occupation. I mean, he's working the field. I mean, this this is where he's invested all of his money. He bought a team of oxen. He's bought a yoke. He's He's got a plow. This is what he does by trade. He plows fields. And he says that Elisha turned back from him. He took the yoke of oxen and killed them. He slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate and they arose and they followed and he followed Elisha and became a servant and what he was saying in his heart is that I've heard this call of God and some of you please hear me this morning I'm not saying that all of you need to quit your jobs and and do do anything of the sort some of you God may be speaking to you about that and I know that we get mixed up in this all the time but I'm just talking about The call of our life. When God calls you, you need to walk away from the lifestyle that you were living before. There needs to be this new life that is growing in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are certain things of your lifestyle or your old lifestyle that you need to leave on the table and walk away from. Am I making myself clear this morning? You guys with me? All right, all right. So, I just need to ask you this morning... Is there something that you need to leave behind? Since the time that Jesus called you, is there something in your life? Some, you know, something that you've kind of held on to. You think that, you know, I can have Jesus. J- Jason and I were visiting a, a, a church a couple of weeks ago, and the pastor said, you know, he says, but I can have Jesus on, on Sunday, and I can have Mardi Gras, you know, Monday through Saturday. It's just like, you know, this is the way I'm going to live. But see, God's not calling you to that kind of lifestyle. He's calling you to a Jesus lifestyle seven days a week. Do we understand that? That's the kind of lifestyle he's calling us to. And so uh, here's another example, kind of like the one in in Kings from Luke. And this is Jesus speaking. He says that someone that wanted to follow Jesus. And he says, I'll follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the service in the kingdom of God. And it, there's a little more into the story. It sounds a little cold at, at first, but if you understand the tradition, really what he was saying, is not like Elisha said, let me go kiss my father and my mother. Hey, what he was saying is, I'm going to follow you, but I need to take care of my family first. And you know, they may have 10 or 15 or 20 more years you know, yet to live, but I'm going to take care of them. And when I'm done with that, then I'll follow you. That's what that, that simply means. And Jesus says, look, I've called you. I mean, I, I've come by your booth today, and I've called you to a serious calling. Probably the most serious call that you will ever receive in your life is the call of God, the voice of God speaking to your heart, saying, are you ready to leave it behind, talking about that lifestyle of sin and of shame and of guilt and, and the lifestyle that you're, you've been living And and I know that many of you, if you've been like me, you know, I promise God I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit. I prayed it a thousand times. I repented a thousand times. I'm going to quit. God, I want to quit. Forgive me. I want to quit. Forgive me tonight. I want to quit. Forgive me tomorrow night. I want to quit. I mean, I prayed that prayer a thousand times, and some of you have as well. Because I was trying to do things on my own. But when I realized that there was a power, a power greater than I had within my, myself, you know, I, I thought, you know, I am a man. I, I spell M, do H, N, man. I spell man. I can do this on my own, God. But when I realized I couldn't do it on my own, all right, I needed a greater power. I needed greater is he that lives in me than he that lives in the world. And God has given us that greater power. And it's, you know, when I realized that I couldn't do this on my own, and I began to cry out to God, God, you know, I, I, know, I know it's about, you know, I don't want to, you know, it, it, in my mind I'm thinking I got to keep all of these rules and regulations, and I, I just found that I couldn't. And not only that I couldn't, I didn't want to. I didn't want to quit. And, and so when the Lord began to come into my life in a greater measure, And see, he will come in to the degree that we allow him to come in. And if you only want a little bit of him to come in, only a little bit to come in. But when you recognize that your life is a wreck and it's not working, that your plan is not working and only God's plan is going to work, and when you say, God, I I want the fullness and the power of your Holy Spirit to come in and change me, he will come and power will come power that you never thought was even there, that you never knew was available, will come. And it's not by you keeping rules and regulations, it's by you simply just saying, God, please, please come and bring change to my heart and bring change to my life. Uh, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians says it like this. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone away, new things or new life has begun. All of this is the gift of God who brought us back to himself through Christ. Notice that, that when we come to Christ, old things, this old lifestyle has passed away and we have a new life. Notice verse 19, he says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting, listen to this, this is good, no longer counting people's sins against them and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And here's that message, guys. The message is, please, you know, when we go out, don't try to get people to keep rules and regulations. Just tell them. We talked about this last week. Remember, we read at the end of Luke's gospel for this reason. We talked about the reason that Jesus came. We talked about all the different reasons that he came. We talked about him loving us and dying for our sins and to destroy the works of the devil. But one of the things that he said that he came for was to proclaim the message of the gospel and that he has commissioned you and I to proclaim the message of the gospel. He didn't tell us to go tell people to keep rules and regulations. He said, just simply tell them that their sins are forgiven and they have entrance into heaven through God the Father. And once we point them to God the Father, God the Father will do the same thing in their lives as he's done in our lives. He, he, you know, it's not for us to tell them to keep rules and regulations. It's simply for us to point them to God the Father. Amen? That's good news right there. That's what we call good news. All right. And so the second point, big idea, big thought that we have here in this message is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples uh, that uh, Jesus and the, and the disciples as well were eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to read that again. Matthew 9, 10 through 13 is, is uh, in your, in your notes and in the overhead. But if you look at the last few verses of that, that, Matthew says something, quoting the same passage of Scripture that Luke doesn't really pick up on. And it says, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but it's the sick. And then he adds, Matthew adds this, and Luke doesn't put this in. And Jesus says, Go. He's telling the religious leaders, go and learn what this means. Now, you guys are all, you know, brilliant minds. You all know the law is what Jesus is saying, but he says, I want you to go and learn what this means—that I desire mercy, and not sacrifice. See, the 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 the, uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees, they wanted their pound of flesh. They wanted, dude, you are going to get even. It's going to be retribution. And what Jesus is saying, you know, what I really want to give them is mercy. I desire to give them mercy. I'm not interested in the sacrifice. I'm not interested in, in them killing animals and offering for, them, for their sins. I really just want to show them mercy. I want to show them love. I want to show them compassion because in doing this, and we talk about all these rules and regulations and keeping all of the law, but remember G, the Scripture says that Jesus is the end of the law to those that believe, what does that mean? Does that mean that I can do any sin I want to do? No because if Jesus is the end of the law to those that believe you know what do you say what do he say the two great commandments were to love God and to love your neighbor and so you know if if, if i'm if i'm keeping those two commandments if i 'm really adhering to and listening to and obeying those two uh, those uh, two commandments that when my brother when my sister begins to speak evil of me, what am I going to do? Under the law, hey, I could do I mean, you punch me in the eye, I can punch you in the eye. You, you kill my ox, I can kill your ox. I can get even with you. But when he says that Jesus is the end of the law to those that believe, the end of the law is this, to love God and to love your neighbor. And if we love our neighbor, we're going to do it to our neighbor what we want our neighbor to do to us. It's all covered. Everything is covered in those two commandments. And Jesus is saying, I desire mercy. I desire mercy. And he goes on to say in Matthew 21, he says, I tell you the truth. And here it comes again, that phrase over and over, talking to the, talking to the religious leaders. Now, you can you imagine if you're a religious leader there that day and how much they disdain the tax collectors and the sinners. But Jesus is telling the religious leaders, he says, I tell you the truth, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes, whoa, are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For for John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you didn't repent and believe him. And then he goes on in Luke 18. He says, to those that were confident in their own righteousness, they looked down on everybody else. This is the religious leaders. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other. Here it is again, you know, the religious leader, the upper end, the tax collector, and the sinner, the bottom. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he talked about all the rules and the regulations. You know, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, at the bottom of the totem pole, he says, says that he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. You see, the, the, the religious leader didn't even recognize that he was a sinner. He thought that all the good things, all the good deeds, all the good works that he was doing was going to be his ticket to heaven. And I want to tell you that sometimes we get in that mode, guys. We start thinking, well, all the, you know, God, if you put all of my good stuff on a scale and all my bad stuff on a scale... That it surely it's going to tip in the favor of goodness. My good is going to outweigh my bad. And you know what God says? Bunk or something like that. Garbage. You know, you want goodness? You want goodness in your life? It's not by doing good things. The Bible says that He, speaking about Jesus, who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God or the goodness of God through him, that our goodness comes from what Jesus did on the cross from us. doesn't come from anything that we've done. Now, I love this, and this is getting ready to get really good, okay? If you haven't thought it's been good so far, just hang on. This is getting ready to be good. You know, I'm like uh, Jason was telling me, the, I was flying back and, you know, how the flight attendants are always telling these, you know, funny little stories. But he said this one flight attendant came on and said, um, I want to encourage you to uh, tighten up your seatbelt a little extra tight today. The pilot says he wants to try something new. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that make you feel? It's like, okay, what are we, 180s or 360s, or what are we doing today? All right, he says, I wrote to you. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. I wrote to you in my epistle. Now listen to this, because oh, we've all been there. We've all done this, the spiritual gymnastics where we jump through all these hoops. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company, with sexually immoral people. Man, man, okay, cool. I got that. Got that part down. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world or the covetous of this world or the extortioners of this world or the idolaters of the world because if you did that, you'd need to leave the world is what he's saying. You know, he's saying that, and sometimes in our mind, it's just like, man, I don't want to get too close to this guy. I mean, some of his sin might jump off of him and get on me. I certainly wouldn't want that to happen. Now, look at this. This next one is even better in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the question was, you know, how much spent, do we spend time? I mean, we've all been there. We've all been invited You know, you've been invited to someone from your office party or somebody that you know that you know that's not a believer and you start looking for excuses of why you shouldn't go. It's like, oh my gosh, they're sinners or they might be drinking in that house, oh my gosh, and they smoke and, you know, and they they use off-colored language and let's just find a reason, tell them you're sick or that, you know, we've got another appointment and we start looking for all of these reasons. And if you guys... You're liars. I tell you what, if you deny that you've ever done that, I'm just calling you liars right now. Yeah. You know, we've all done that. It's just like, man, I don't want to be, I just, let's find a reason not to go. But let me keep reading this because this is so good. He says, eat anything. And, and the whole question here was, you know, do you eat meat that's been offered just to some, some idol, like Diana or, you know, some of these other idols? Do we eat that meat? You know, it's like, yuck, it's, gonna, it's not even going to taste the same because it's been offered to somebody else or some other god. But notice what Paul says. He says, eat anything sold at the butcher shop. For instance, you don't have to run an idolatry test on every item. The earth, after all, is God's and everything in it. Even that little sheep that was offered to Dianus, the sheep still belonged to God. It was still something that he made. And listen to this. Oh, verse 27, I love this, it's so good. He says, if a non-believer invites you to dinner, a non-believer, that'd be a non-Christian, okay. If a non-believer invites you to dinner and you feel like going, go ahead and enjoy yourself. No, no, that can't be in the Bible. I can't go to a sinner's house and enjoy myself. What was God thinking about? Take that out, scratch that out. It's impossible mean God wants me to go to a sinner's house and enjoy myself? I mean, what was God thinking? What was He thinking the day that He wrote that? It's like, go to a sinner's house and enjoy yourself. Oh, oh no, I'm too holy for that. I am way too holy for that. Guys, I tell you what, this is the wake-up call for us. Because there are a lot of sinners that need to have you in their house. How are they going to hear the word? Who's going to tell them about Jesus? Who's going to tell them about this incredible change that's come into your life and how the change came into your life unless you go there? You know, what are the odds of them just showing up just like, oh, I think it's Sunday morning, you know, I haven't been to church in 20 years. Uh, nah, I think I'll go today. That's probably not going to happen. But if you are invited to their house or even greater maybe you could invite them to your house. I know that's a challenge for some of you. But let's think about it, okay? Let's think about reaching out. I mean, how can we, he says he's already given us this ministry of reconciliation, and simply what that is is just telling people about what God has done in our lives, how good God is and what God has done in our lives. And so he says, if you feel like going, go ahead and go and enjoy yourself and eat everything placed before you, it would be both bad manners and bad spirituality to cross-examine your host on the eth- uh, ethical purity of each course that's served. Like, hey, did you, you didn't happen to offer this to Diana or to Jupiter or to some of these other idols, did you? I mean, is this clean food? He said, just simply eat it and bless it. You know, you can just say that blessing. You know, I mean, and when we do go... You, we got to get spiritual, obviously. You know, if I'm going to go, well, I, I got to say, you know, can I pray? Dear God, in Jesus' name, you know, we start off. You know, it's like, guys, please, let's just be people. Let's do what the word says. Let's go ahead and enjoy ourselves. And then finally, I want to wrap this up. Luke uh, closes chapter 5 with, a, uh, with two parables. And there's a, uh, there, there's kind of a law in the scriptures called the law of preeminence. And it's like the first time that something appears, you're supposed to take note of it. And so this is the first time that, that uh, parables appear in Luke's gospel. And not only one uh, parable appears, but he puts two together. And they said to him, John's disciples often fast. And the, my third point or big idea here is that change is coming. And that's really what the rub was between Jesus and, and, the, and the Pharisees, that change is coming. And you remember that the accusations about Jesus during the trial was, you know, that this man said he's going to destroy the temple. This man is changing the laws of Moses. All of these accusations were coming to him. And they begin with, with some, some of this that we're going to be reading right now. Uh, John's disciples fast often, um, and they pray, um, and the disciples of the Pharisees, they fast often, they pray, but yours, they just go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the guest of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and in those days he will fast. And he told them this parable. He says, no one tears a patch from a new garment and shows it to an old one, if he does he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the, uh, the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and, wine, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants new, for he says the old is better. And so, what's he saying here? I mean, it's a parable. And I know that, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's a parable. Yeah, everybody understands it. You know, he's just talking about, you know, tearing clothes and, you know, wine and wineskins. But let's get to the the heart of the matter, what he's talking about. And probably the best illustration, I don't know if Jesus could use this illustration today because, you know, uh, it just seems like uh, old jeans are more popular than new jeans. In fact, some people will go out to find a pair of jeans that's uh, got a hole in them or patches on them. But... uh, for example, 2,000 years ago, that would not be the case. And so what he's saying is that we all have our own favorite pair of jeans back then. Let's just use that for an example. You got your favorite pair of jeans, and maybe they do have holes in the knee, and the pocket's coming off, and you got a hole in the back. And what Jesus is saying is that if someone came up to you and said, Hey, you know, I noticed that you're, I, I tell that to my granddaughter occasionally, Hey, here's $20, go buy yourself a new pair of jeans. Uh but uh, at 2,000 years ago, uh, that would not be the case. And so if somebody showed up uh, and saw that you had a bad pair of jeans, you know, and gave you a new pair of jeans, you certainly wouldn't think about cutting a square out of the new jeans and sewing it onto the old jeans. Or you wouldn't think about cutting the back pocket off and sewing it on the old jeans. And what he's saying is that, you know, that you, you wouldn't tear up the new to, to, you know, to, uh, to just preserve the old. And what he's saying is that there is change that's coming. There's this old way of doing things that is getting ready to pass away, and you can't see it yet, but God is bringing a change. He's bringing something new, he's bringing something new in, and you wouldn't destroy the new to preserve or keep the old uh, ongoing. And then he tells the same story about wine. In those days, wine was typically stored in clay jars. You'd put, you know, make a, a jar of clay, put your wine in there. The action, the fermenting action of the wine, uh, would have no effect on the clay. But if you're going out for a picnic or for a meal out in, you know, on the countryside, you would take wine from that clay jar, pour it into a wine skin that would hold the wine. And over a period of, of time, the wine, the fermenting action, that all of that that's going back and forth would cause or break down the strength of that wineskin. And he says that after a while, you've got to put new wine into new wineskins. Otherwise, eventually, the old wineskin is going to break and you're going to just spill wine all over you before you get to your party. So what he's saying is that the old garment. And the old wineskin is simply, it's getting ready to pass away. You can't see it yet, but it is passing away. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then he says in verse 12, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, this new covenant, this new thing, this, this new garment, this new wine skin, the old is passing away, this old covenant, this Old Testament, this old law, this old way of doing things is passing away. And he says, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. And then he goes on to say... I'm talking about righteousness because the the Pharisees believed that righteousness came by all the do's and the don'ts. If you do all of these things, you'll become righteous. And if you don't do all of these things or these certain things, you will become righteous. But in Romans chapter 3, and we're wrapping this up, and as I'm closing this last couple of scriptures, I'd like for our prayer ministers, if you guys would just come up and take your place, please i listen to this carefully. He says, but now a righteousness from God. I want you to think about that. A righteousness from God. we have any prayer ministers here this morning? <laughs> a righteousness from God. You know, how do I become righteous? Well, if you ask the religious leaders of the, of, of the old day, of that time, they would say, These are the certain, you need to do these things to become righteous and not do these things to become. It it was a righteousness that was based on works and do's and don'ts. And in Romans chapter 3, he says, but now a righteousness from God. Listen, you got to get this into your heart. If you don't get this in your heart, I'm telling you, you will struggle all your Christian walk with understanding this. Because you will spend the rest of your life trying to please God. You will think that, you know, I did something today that was wrong and I didn't please God, and I've got to try harder. I've got to work harder to please God. But he's saying here, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, it doesn't include the law. The laws doesn't have anything to do with this righteousness from God. He says, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's simply just believing. Now, we know that in Romans chapter 4, it says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, not offering Isaac not, you know, even going into the promised land, not, none of these things, none of, this, none of the works that he did, you know, was counted to him as righteousness. It said that he simply believed God. And in believing God, putting his faith in God, putting his hope in his faith and his trust in God was counted to him as righteousness. And then finally, the last verse, Galatians chapter 3, it says, but before faith came, faith in what? Help me out. Who do we have faith in? We have faith in Jesus, right? Before faith came, we were kept under the guard of the law, kept for faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or our teacher or our instructor to bring us to Christ. Really, by keeping the law, all the law did is say, you know, like if I stole, the law reminded me that I was a thief. If I committed adultery, the law said, hey, you're an adulterer. If I, you know, blasphemed God, the law said you're a blasphemer. But there was nothing in the law that healed me once I did those things. There was no hope. There was no healing. There was no forgiveness in the law. All the law did was point out my sins. And so he says that, therefore, the law was our tutor. It just, it pointed our sins out to us to bring us to Christ. And once we came to Christ, that we were simply, we were just justified by faith. Lord Jesus, I put my hope and my faith and my trust in you today. I recognize that I've broken your law. I've transgressed the law. I've lied. I've stolen. I've cheated. I've done all of these things. God, I'm a sinner. Help me. Help me, God. I'm a sinner. And that help comes only from Jesus Christ. Stand with me, please. Now, maybe this morning... Some of you have recognized that by the law, something that I've said, maybe something the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, that you are living a life apart from God and maybe unlike Matthew, maybe you haven't left it all on the table, maybe you haven't left the table behind, but you want to do that today. And I want to give you that opportunity. So with our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Is God? What's God saying to you right now? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? Is the Holy Spirit saying that you've left stuff on the table that you keep going back to? And that you need to walk away from the table completely? Is that what the Holy Spirit saying to you? If it is, if he's saying that to you, I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand just really, really high. If you've left stuff on the table and you haven't completely walked away from it, you just raise your hand up high. Okay, all right. We don't, you don't need to be ashamed. I mean, all of us have done that. Okay, you can put your head, hands down. And I, I just want to pray with you. We just say, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, I have left some stuff on the table. And it could be anything. I mean, it, any kind of sin, it could be. Fornication or adultery or pornography or even unforgiveness or some hatred that I have in my heart towards someone, some bitterness that I have, ungodly thoughts, the way that I treated someone. I've left some stuff on the table, Lord, and I'm asking you to forgive me. And I want you to just wipe the table clean. Lord, I want to be like Elisha. I, I want to burn that bridge and I don't want to go back to the table anymore. And I'm asking you, God, by your power and your strength that you'll enable me, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll enable me to walk away from that table forever. Now, there may be someone here this morning, and you've never really given your life to Jesus. And I want to just give you that opportunity as well. And still, you know, to me, this is the most precious moment that you will ever have in your life. And that is when it's you and God and no one's watching and no one's looking but if you're listening god may be saying something to you he may be saying come home come home come home you hear god saying that to you you hear god saying come home to you that like a like a shepherd looking for a sheep a lost sheep God the Father is looking for lost sons and daughters. And if he's speaking to you this morning and you want to come home and have a new relationship and just that joy of salvation and the gladness of knowing that your sins are forgiven and that there's no more guilt and shame, that you are welcome at the table of God, walking away from your table But walking to the table of God, if you hear God saying to you this morning, come home, and you want to come home, again, every head bowed and every eye closed, raise your hand. I just want you to raise your hand high this morning. God's saying, come home, come home, come home. And I see several hands that are being raised. Please, you can put your hands down. Thank you. And we're just going to simply say, Father, in Jesus' name, I choose to leave my table, to dine at your table. I want to be called a son or a daughter of the living God. Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I thank you, Father, that you welcome me home in Jesus' name.